0: Welcome to Money for the Rest for the Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 131. It's titled, Is This the Creepiest Investment Ever? It's the day after Halloween. I loved Halloween growing up. What a great deal. You got to go out in a costume and get free candy, and the parents and families giving out candy got to see kids in costume. It was a fair trade. One of our friends told a story, though, about the first time their child went out trick-or-treating. He must have been young, maybe three. He's got his costume on. He goes to the door, and the person was one of these half-doors, and the half-door opened up, and after the the child had said trick-or-treat, the door hit him in his head. He started bawling. He wanted nothing to do with candy, and it took a number of doors to convince him this was a fair trade that the trick at the beginning or after saying trick or treat you did not have to endure excruciating pain now investing is like that we want fairness on both sides surely when you invest you get a risk premium there's an additional return you get above and beyond the risk free rate but that return premium can't be too high if it's way too high then somebody is being taken advantage of. Today, we're going to talk about an investment where investors are earning 20% annualized with very little losses. There's a hedge fund on here where there were, only, there were losses only 5% of the months, and the worst loss was 0.5% in a given month. That was it. That was the maximum drawdowns. Now, what is the risk that these investors are taking How can we get a hold of those investments? I'll share that in this episode. But the risk is that people might live longer than expected. In fact, with this investment, the faster people die, the more the investors make. That's the topic of today's episode. But first, when I was in my mid-30s, like many of you, I took out two term life insurance policies for $500,000 each. So a total of a million dollars in life insurance. The policies were good until I reached the age of 95 and the and the premium was guaranteed for 20 years about $350 to $400 a year for each policy. At which point the premium skyrocketed to thousands of dollars annually. So I'll probably drop the policy when in in 4 or 5 years when the 20-year term is up even though I do have the right to continue. With the policy. The purpose of those policies was to help take care of my family if I died prematurely while my kids were young. But now that they're grown and we have sufficient investments, we don't need the policies to the same degree that when my family was much younger. So, what does one do if you have something you no longer need? Well, you sell it or you give it away. So, I called an insurance broker, specifically the Ashar Group based out of Orlando, Florida, they put me through to Jason Mendelsohn, who turns out to be the company president. I told him, I like to sell my life insurance. How old are you, asked Jason. I'm 51. And how's your health? Well, not as good as when I took out my policies. I no longer think I'm rated super preferred life by those insurance companies. And then I listed off some of my ailments, Jason kindly informed me my policy couldn't be sold. He said, at my age, in order to sell the policy, I would need personally to be significantly impaired with less than four years to live. I would need a terminal condition. The only way I could sell my policy if I had decent health is if I were older than age 74, at my age, even if I weighed 300 pounds and had diabetes, I wouldn't be able to sell my policy if my condition could be managed with medication. But had I been seriously impaired I, and I could medically prove that, then Jason's company definitely could have facilitated the sale of my policy to a pension plan or some other institutional investor. At that point, I'd get a lump sum cash payment for my policy, Asher Group would take a commission. It would be the lesser of 8% of the death benefit on the policy, so 8% of $500,000, or 30% of the sales price, whichever is less. And then the institutional investor or the hedge fund would make the premium payments on my policy. And the sooner I died, the higher the return on the investment. Now, this this investment is called a life settlement, and and selling insurance in the secondary market it's divided into two segments. The first is called viaticals. and that was really the early the early days uh, of this the secondary market for life insurance was really came about in the eighties during the AIDS epidemic, where in policyholders that had AIDS in order to raise money for for treatment would sell their policy, and there was a lot of abuse in terms of uh, policyholders being taken advantage of, and so these viaticals kind of got a bad name. The life settlement is, is for those that have their, their expected life or life expectancy is greater than two years, and it's much more regulated. I believe about 45 states now have a regulated life settlement market. And it's a growing market. In 2015, according to data compiled by the deal, there were 1,123 individuals in the U.S. who sold their life insurance policy as part of life settlements with a face value of $1.65 billion. The top 15 facilitators did over 1,098 policies with a face value of $1.6 billion. And they paid $325 million, or about 20% of the death benefit. Investors in life settlements have done extremely well. The AAP Investable Life Settlement Index, this is an index that tracks the performance of non-U.S.-based open-end life settlement funds, most of which are buying life insurance policies issued in the U.S. Here's the interesting thing. As an individual investor, I could not find a way that I could invest in life settlements. Not that I actually would, because I'm going to talk about some of the challenges I see with this investment. But most of, much of the investment is coming from overseas. There are actually retail funds, closed-end funds overseas in Europe that, that, that essentially are buying U.S. insurance policy. Now, that index, the AAP Investable Life Index, began December 2012. And had you were able to invest in the index, which you can't because it's tracking these open-end funds, it would have grown to approximately $178 by month end September 2016. That's an annualized return of 16.6%. I looked for other investments, trying to find out who's investing in these things. And I came across this fund called the Long-Term Growth Fund. It's a hedge fund. It's based in Luxembourg. It's managed by Carlisle Management. It has had a return, and I'll link to the fact sheet, 21.9% annualized since its inception July first, two 2009 through September 2016. Now, we couldn't tell from the disclosures, which surprised me, You couldn't tell if that performance was gross of fees or net of fees, which makes a difference because the fees are 2% management fee plus 20% of the profits above an 8% hurdle rate, so a traditional hedge fund-like structure. But either way, the returns, 21.9% annualized. And what is amazing about that track record is the fund has only experienced Four negative performing months in its seven-plus year history. And the worst, worst monthly return was negative 0.47%. The fund helpsly point out pointed out that 72% of distributions have come from male deaths, 28% from female deaths. And the vast majority of distributions are from 13 states, with over 20% from California. What's a distribution? That means somebody dies, and the death benefit is paid out on one of the policies that this fund had bought. Twenty percent of the distribution came from life expectancies, was, where the life expectancy was less than, had, the policyholders had less than six years to live, and 50 percent had less than eight and a half years to live. How did the fund manager generate 20% annualized returns over the past seven years with very, 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 very consistent returns, very few losses? According to the manager, it's, they say its strategy is to build a large, diversified portfolio of life settlements across numerous sectors, including but not limited to carrier, concentration, expected maturities, gender, age, medical impairment, geography, and the face value size. In order to properly implement a buy-and-hold strategy, the fund seeks to isolate mortality risk and build a large sample size. Since policies are held through maturity, the manager employs extremely detailed actuarial and financial analysis to ensure that policies purchased are accounted for longevity risk as well as other variables of the statistical profile. In other words, the way to make money if you're buying and investing in life settlements is not pay too much for policies and correctly estimate how quickly people will die. Investors like life settlement investments because they are uncorrelated with other asset classes. The performance driver is people dying, not central bank policies or corporate profitability. The fact that a hedge fund can generate 20% plus returns with little market risk, while a broker who facilitates a transaction can earn up to a 30% commission rate suggests that there is someone on the other side of the trade who is leaving a great deal of money on the table. And that someone is the person selling their life insurance policy. When you invest, we want... Generally, we have a sense of fairness. We want some information asymmetry. We don't want to be taken advantage of. I mentioned we recently sold our farmhouse. And as part of the sale, we, we, we disclosed it. We, we disclosed everything wrong with the house. The buyer had an inspector come. We got along very, very well. We had a contract in place, but we, we're doing some seller financing on this property the the new buyers planning on starting a business with the property, but there was some information asymmetry. We we shared what we knew. Everybody felt like the price was fair, and and we went ahead with the transaction. With life settlement, there is not information asymmetry. It is a very very opaque market. There is not a clearinghouse where you you can. You can upload your policy and get a number of bidders. It's, it is a negotiated transaction with a, a broker. And oftentimes, those selling their policies are are somewhat under duress, not because the broker is, is putting them under duress. I had a very good conversation with, with Jason at Asher Group, and he came across as, as very, very... Honest, intelligent. In fact, he warned that there are there are some players in the industry that you just have to be careful. Of. He wouldn't invest at. So but you just need to recognize that there's some information asymmetry. Somebody is making a great deal of money on that, which suggests maybe selling your life insurance policy isn't a great deal. Another source of returns I got was from a paper by Alfonso Juanua Rio and Narayan. Why, Nike, Nike. It was titled, Empirical Investigation of Life Settlements, the Secondary Market for Life Insurance Policies. All the p- papers I reference in, in this particular episode can be had at moneyfortherestofus.net. Or if you remember my Insider's Guide, you can, you can go to moneyfortherestofus.net. You can sign up for that free Insider's Guide. I'll email those show notes to you, including links to these academic papers on a weekly basis right after the episode is released and you get a summary article of that week's episode. So that's at moneyfortherestofus.net, or if you're a U.S.-based listener, just text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. Well, this paper took a comprehensive look at over 9,002 policies that were sold from over 7,000 individuals. The death benefit was $24 billion, and these were all sold in the secondary market. It was be- it was between 2001 and and 2011 across 50 states. And they were trying to see, you know, is this a good deal for the individual selling their policy? And what rates of return could investors purchasing these policies be expected to make? Well, here's what they found. By selling their policies in the secondary market, the policy owners in, our, in the sample Collectively, receive more than four times the amount they would have received had they surrendered their policies to the respective life insurance companies and taken a cash payment. Because most, like I was trying to sell my term life insurance, which which wasn't, you know, obviously I wasn't impaired, so I couldn't sell it. But many insurance policies are called permanent insurance, and it's like a whole life or universal life, where there's some type. Of cash value, and clearly, selling your policy, you can get more than the cash value, and we're going to see why that's the case here in a few minutes. But here's what the returns are. Now, now step back. They said you could get four times what it what it the it would have been had you let your policy lapse, turn it in for the cash value. That doesn't mean it's still a great idea to sell your policy, but in terms of returns, they found that. On average, over that time window, investors could expect to make 12.5% per annum, or about 8.4% over Treasury yields. And the returns ranged from 18.9% in 2001 to a low of 11% in 2005, 2006, 2007. But in recent years, the returns were even better, an 18.3% return in 2011, which is about 15.9% above Treasury yields. So, so excess of very, very high returns, not as high as the 20% annualized returns, but in this market, to get consistent 12.5% annualized returns, or like upwards of 18% in 2011, that's very, very attractive. And again, it comes down to information asymmetry. The, the individual selling their policies are not getting the best price. They're, they're selling it for on, on the cheap, and the investor on the other side of the trade is making significantly higher return, and their only risk, they're not taking market risk, the only risk is that the, the individuals will outlive. They, they'll, they'll live longer than expected. And how do they know how long they're going to live? Because if you sell your insurance policy you have to get a physical. There has to be some type of mortality assessment. In other words, you're going to release your medical record so a third party can evaluate your medical condition, do an actuarial assumption, and estimate how long they expect you to live because that's what the pricing is based on. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com David. That's linkedin.com David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Now back to these permanent insurance policies. The vast majority of individuals let their policies lapse. They either stop paying altogether or they turn it in and collect the cash payment or the, the cash value. 25% of permanent insurance policies, so whole life, universal life, etc., lapse within the first three years of purchase. 40% within 10 years. And during those first 10 years, so there's very little cash value. So so individuals can afford the premiums, they buy the, these expensive insurance policies, and they let them lap. We covered whole life insurance, universal life, index universal life in episode 79 of the show, and one of my points is don't buy any policy unless you understand it, and if you're going to buy one of these policies with a cash value, plan on paying it the rest of your life. And here's why. The insurance policies, these permanent insurance policies, are priced assuming a large percent of the, the holders will let them lapse. There's a paper by, called Lapsed-Based Insurance by Daniel Gottlieb and Kent Smetters. They say insurance companies earn substantial profits from these lapsing policies, They lose money when policyholders keep their permanent insurance policies. Hence, policyholders who let their policies lapse end up subsidizing those that keep their policies. Gottliebs and Smetters point out that the insurance industry lobbies intensely to restrict the operations of secondary markets where policyholders could sell their policies as part of life settlements. They say the introduction of a secondary life insurance market allows entering firms to offer households better terms relative to surrendering, undermining the cross-subsidy from lapsing to non-lapsing households. Insurers therefore lose money on existing contracts, which were written under the assumption that a significant proportion of the policies would lapse. In other words... The, the pricing is competitive enough that whole life insurance policies are priced assuming a large percent of the populace will, will surrender them for these low cash values amount or just forget about them altogether and just stop paying the premium. Those that continue to pay the premium and let the cash value build, and I've mentioned your typical whole life insurance policy Generally, if you keep it for, for life, it'll earn 4% to 5% annually, plus you get the death benefit. But So if you hold it, you're better off holding it for, for the, 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 the rest of your life. But the insurance industry is planning and priced these policies so that a large percentage of the people will let them lapse. So those that let their policies lapse end up subsidizing those that didn't. Because if the policies were priced, assuming nobody would let their policy lapse, then the policies would lose money collectively. So if there's a secondary market development and more and more individuals realize, hey, I could actually sell my policy instead of turning it in and letting it lapse, then then the insurance company doesn't want that to happen. Because then their, their financial model of these insurance policies is it's undermined. so they don't want the secondary life insurance market to 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 be there they just they just don't want it to happen, but it is allowed, and it's been allowed since nineteen eleven when the u s Supreme Court ruled in the case of Grigsby versus Russell that policies policyholders could sell their policies several episodes ago. I mentioned justice. Oliver Wendell Holmes, when you're we talking about simplicity on the far side of complexity. That was his quote. Well, this was one of his other cases, and he said in, the, in the, his ruling so far as reasonable safety permits, it is desirable to give life policies the ordinary characteristics of property, which means you can sell it. To deny the right to sell except to persons having such an interest is to diminish appreciably the value of the contract in the owner's hand. In other words, the policyholder has the right to sell their policy in the secondary market. Now, what's not allowed is what is called stranger-originated life insurance, where there is no insurable interest on the part of the policyholder. In other words, where the original purchaser of the life insurance policy doesn't have a stake in the insured actually continuing to live. When I bought my insurance policies, my family hoped they wouldn't ever have to collect, that I would continue to live. But if you're buying a policy on a stranger, Holmes writes, it creates the potential for mischief and incentives for crime, such as somebody buying up insurance policies, and then killing off the beneficiary or not the beneficiaries, the, the person that's insured. That, that's not allowed. So we can't have stranger-originated life insurance, but we are allowed, there is a secondary market that's permitted. Even though insurance companies don't want it to be there, it's allowed to happen. But just because you can sell your life insurance policy, so should you? particularly given the high returns being generated by life settlement investors and the fact that insurance companies prefer policyholders to let their policies lapse? That suggests policyholders are better off finding a way to hold on to their policies. For one reason, when you sell your policy, you give up a huge tax benefit. Death benefits paid to beneficiaries of life insurance policies are tax-free. Whereas if a policyholder sells their life insurance on the secondary market, they have to pay taxes on a portion of those proceeds, and the buyer of the policies also pays taxes on the death benefits. That The taxing of the death benefit is one reason the proceeds from selling a policy is so low. Eleanor Lace in Kiplinger writes that the life settlement gross purchase price before deducting taxes Commissions and other transaction costs are usually 10 to 25% of the death benefit. And transaction costs, which includes commissions, can eat up to 10 to 20% of the gross purchase price. So if you're selling your policy, you're you're likely to only get 10 to 25% of the death benefit. And of the amounts you get, you're gonna pay out 10 to 20% of that in commission and transaction costs. And another downside to selling life insurance is the the potential loss of privacy. I mentioned that the the underwriters, they want to review your medical records and prepare a mortality mortality profile with a summary of your expected medical conditions and life expectancy. And so you have to give up some privacy. Now, hopefully they they white out your name, but there have been instances in the secondary market where you could see who the policyholder is was, given the high transaction costs, low percentage payouts, loss of tax benefits, potential privacy risk, rather than selling your life insurance policy, it's more financially advantageous in most cases to borrow against the policy. See if the premium payments could come out of the cash value. Negotiate with the insurance company to see if you can have your cash value Cover your remaining premium payments because the the most the main reason people want to sell their insurance policy is they need the money. There's a liquidity event. They feel like they need liquidity. They got to get money. Maybe it's to cover long-term care expenses or other medical expenses. But just selling it or giving it back and letting it lapse and getting the cash value, or selling it in the secondary market is not always the best choice. Perhaps you can get your beneficiaries to make the premium payments and help out. Or if you have a short life expectancy, you're terminally ill, it's always possible to negotiate directly with the insurance company for an accelerated death benefit rather than turn it rather than turning to the secondary market. If you do have to sell, at least shop around. Try to get the best deal. Try to negotiate. Negotiate first with your insurance company. They have an incentive for this policy not to be sold on the secondary market. Make sure you know who, who you're dealing with. Get, get references. And finally, if you sell your policy in the secondary market, one of the things that the Janua Rio Naik paper pointed out, they say, we notice that an increasing number of policy owners are retaining a share in the net benefit when selling their policies thereby eliminating the burden of having to fund future premium payments, but while retaining an interest in the policy's value. So you can actually sell your policy in the secondary market, but keep a portion of the death benefit for your beneficiaries. So that is, in my mind, one of the creepiest investment ever. A little bit of a holiday or Halloween episode. Show notes are at moneyfortherestofus.net. If you want information on the Money for the Rest of Us hub, you can get that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing the economy. Have a great week.